Good morning. My name is Emily Hughes, and I'm going to read Romans 8, 31 to 39 from the Christian Standard Bible. This is to prepare our hearts and minds for the sermon. And before I read it, I will say, hear the word of God. And after I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of God, to which we will all respond together as a church family, thanks be to God, expressing our gratitude to him for the precious gift of his word. In the CSB, this portion is titled, The Believer's Triumph. Hear the word of God. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Our Abba, Father God, what incredible words we have just heard. Wow. In a week when we feel needy and desperate for your words, for your spirit, we come into this place to worship together and you fill us with your truths. You intercede for us. What a comfort. What an incredible gift. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. I pray especially over Matthew as he preaches the words you have given him this week. Please open our hearts to receive and to really hear what you are saying to us. We are so humbled and we are so grateful for your goodness. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning is significant and I'm excited about for at least a couple of reasons. Three come to mind. One, I have the inestimable privilege of opening God's word for you this morning. Two, we are going to baptize four people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit this morning. After baptizing 13 people two weeks ago, God is at work, family. And three, because there is a mixture of people that I deeply love in this room that have been a part of my story. The Peterson family is up in the front row and I served with Matt as an elder in our previous ministry and his wife has been a tremendous encouragement to us. The Hebert family in the middle of this section right over here, Matt has led and brought young people to Jesus in remarkable ways. They as a couple in remarkable ways in a ministry 
in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and I had just the privilege of learning so much from you guys over the course of the years, and their son is with him, and so there's just this beautiful mixture of just amazing things going on, so, you know, don't be surprised if I'm even more passionate than usual if that were possible. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. And I want to encourage you to do something else. And there is no shame in what I'm about to encourage I'm not trying to guilt you into something right now. I just want to encourage you to own a paper Bible and to bring a paper Bible to church. There is something about opening God's word where you can see the context of it like, like you can't on a little teeny screen that you're trying to scroll to get to the next text quickly because we're going to make our way through the book of Romans this morning, believe it or not. I hope you brought a sack lunch. And it is so helpful as I'm going to be taking you through the book of Romans. I love, I love, one of my favorite things is to hear pages turning in a congregation. Love that. And so I would encourage you to bring a paper Bible to be ready to turn. Thank you, I hear them. To write in those Bibles, make notes. In the early 2000s, our family spent a little over eight years at Bethlehem Baptist Church. John Piper was the preacher at the time, and he was preaching through Romans. When we arrived, I'm pretty sure Pastor John was in chapter three of Romans, and when we departed, I'm pretty sure Pastor John was in chapter 15 of Romans, and yes, you heard me right, we were there for eight years and never exited Romans. Now, that kind of journey in Paul's letter to the Romans can make it feel a bit like a 14er. Difficult to summit. That ascending the heights of understanding and, and getting the letter in your head is as hard to, as it is to keep lifting one foot after the other to the mountain's peak. But I don't think that Paul would at all want you to think that way about Romans. I think that he would want you to see in his writing the beauty and depth and yes, some of the complexity of the good news of Jesus. But even more than that, I think what Paul wants for us in Romans is to see the gospel as never-endingly fascinating. That will never plumb the depths or get to the heights of the beauties of the good news of Jesus. That we will never stop making new discoveries. I, I think in that way it is like a 14. I, I can remember Aaron and I, and like he's, he's bringing me up Mount Huron, right? And like we get to that summit and you look out, like you, you got all this valley behind us and you get, and, and I looked out and what did I see? Just summit after summit after summit after summit, all holding new possibilities and adventures and, and discoveries just stretched out for as far as the eye could see. And that's what Romans is. Just when you think that you've ascended, just when you think you've hit the peak, there's just more peaks to see. There's more beauty to see, more depth to see and experience. You see, I think Paul helps us see grandeur and glory that is graspable. It's not beyond you. He wasn't writing to give you something so amazing that you can't grab hold of it. Because what good would that be? <laughs> right? What good would that be? Martin Luther grasps this balance between grandeur and graspability well. He says, this letter 
is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is the purest good news. Okay, grandeur. Also, it is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. So it's graspable. You see that? It's both. The daily bread of the soul. (laughs) I mean, isn't that exactly what good news should be? Nourishing, filling, energizing, sustaining. You know, like that gentle environment that, that we aspire to here at grace. The good news plus safety, plus time as the elements that are needed to create a place and an environment where people can grow one step closer to Jesus. And for that, we need the kind of daily bread that we find of the good news in Paul's letter to the Romans. Good news for bad people through the finished work of the Messiah on the cross and endless exposures to the Holy Spirit, multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to Paul's letter to the Romans. Which is why we're picking up this sermon series once again. And for those of you who've come to Grace maybe in the last three months or so, you might not be aware that we worked through the first eight chapters of Romans starting last year in October all the way through May of this year. And then in line with kind of a new tradition that we have here at Grace, we spent the summer in the Psalms. And now we find ourselves back with the fall starting in Paul's letter to the Romans. And so it seemed good to me to do a review because a lot of us have probably forgotten, oh yeah, what did we learn in chapters one and eight? Like what was that all about? And I thought it would be good to kind of stand here between chapters one to eight and and on the cusp of chapters nine to 16 so that we could get a sense of the whole letter. So what we're going to do is unpack Romans distilled in one sentence. Okay, I I took, I love the people at the Bible Project, and and so I've I've adjusted a sentence that they they said on the book of Romans for our purposes here this morning to to work through it this morning. I hope you got a service guide. If you didn't get a service guide, can you put your hand up? And we've got people who would love to get you a service guide because there are, uh, the outline for this is right on here. This sentence is in there. This is what we're unpacking. The apostles Good news, the Apostle Paul's good news reveals God's righteousness, creates a new humanity, fulfills God's promises to Israel, and empowers a transformed and unified church family. Paul's Paul's good news reveals God's righteousness, creates a new humanity, fulfills God's promises to Israel, and empowers a transformed and unified church family. So first, it reveals God's righteousness, Romans 1 to 4. Now, I understand when I say the Apostle Paul's good news, I understand that it's not only Paul's good news, but it is also helpful, I think, to recognize that the good news doesn't come to any of us separated from a representative of Jesus, someone who deeply loves and passionately proclaims the Messiah to those people that he loves and cares about, a messenger eager to share the good news of Jesus, because that's what good news does, doesn't it? 
Doesn't good news create eagerness? When you've got good news, what do you want to do? You just want to share it. You want to tell everybody what your good news is. And isn't the news of Jesus and what he has done, isn't it, English teachers, isn't it the goodest news of all? (laughs) Romans 1. Turn there with me. Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Messiah Jesus, called as an apostle, which means messenger, messenger. So when you see apostle, don't think authoritative figure that rules a bunch of people. Think proclaimer. An apostle and set apart for the good news of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, this good news concerning his son, Jesus, Messiah, our master, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Messiah. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Master, Jesus Messiah. First, I thank my God through Jesus Messiah for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you. Always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you, but was prevented until now. I, I plan to come to you in order that I might have a faithful ministry among you, a fruitful ministry, just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. You see, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So, oh, you guys, I am eager. (laughs) I am eager to proclaim. Okay, when you see preach there, don't think what's happening right now. We are all proclaimers. We are all proclaimers. I am eager to proclaim the good news to you who are also in Rome. Because I am not ashamed of the good news. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in the good news, and here it is. Here's our first part of our sentence. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So there it is. The first handhold that we're grasping on the way to the summit. The good news reveals God's righteousness to which you should say wow that was back in October I vaguely remember you talking about God's righteousness what is God's righteousness it is his power to save his people it is that he always does what is right and just he is always faithful to his promises he is going to set things right Which implies 
that things are off, right? If things need setting right, then they're off. They're, they're bent. They're broken. They need fixing. You know, every, every religion realizes that there is a problem facing humanity and is thus geared towards addressing that problem that they think is facing humanity. Islam says we face the problem, problem of ignorance. We are ignorant of Allah's will. If only people would read and follow the Quran, this ignorance would be removed. Buddhism says the big problem is attachment to this world. If we can only achieve detachment, then our sorrow would be removed and bliss would be achieved. Even secular humanism attempts to address man's problem. For example, the secularist might say intolerance is the problem. If only we could affirm each other, then our problems would be removed. Doesn't that sound familiar? Even much of Judaism in the first century argued that the problem was disobedience. If we could just be obedient to God's will, then we, it, things would be okay. But Paul makes clear exactly what the problem is that is facing all of humanity, which he unpacks from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Let's get a taste of it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. For God's wrath, there it is. That's humanity's problem. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And Paul goes on to argue that in his day, all humanity had not honored God. Rather, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the immortal God for all kinds of idols. And it is no different in our day. Which should break our hearts. Christians, we have to, we have to guard ourselves from being Arrogant. Because we know this truth in poo-poo and look at people because look at what you're doing and how you dishonor God. And, but we know that the scripture tells us that the evil one has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why would we expect them to act any differently? Our hearts should be broken for the idols that they place up in front of them and bow down to. Claiming all the while to be wise and instead being lost. And Paul describes where such foolishness masquerading as wisdom leads. Turn to chapter 2, verse 5. Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And he will repay each person according to his works. Okay, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be for them affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, also first to the Jew and also to the Greek, because there's no favoritism with God. You see, all humanity is confronted with this problem. There are no exceptions. 
But the reason, y'all, the reason Paul brings this bad news up is not because he's some kind of killjoy and he doesn't want you to be happy. He actually wants you to see how good the good news is. For there's only one solution for every human being and it is the only one and it is the one that only God can deliver because we are so deep in our sin that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. God has to do that for us. <laughs> and he does. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Okay, so it's, that's still, we're still tracking that. Tested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus. That's how I get made right. Because he's the Messiah to all who believe. Because there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, <laughs> back to that beautiful conjunction. But, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Messiah Jesus. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood, the mercy seat through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed, but God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. This is so good. And what comes with Jesus? <laughs> Oh, family, we need an answer to that question. Once God has declared us right because of Jesus, once God makes us stand in the right because of Jesus, we now have a new status. We are right with God and forgiven. We have a new family included in God's people. And we have a new future, a transformed life freely given to us. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul's good news creates a new humanity. Romans 5 to 8. Turn there. Romans 5, verse 12. Paul's good news reveals the righteousness of God and creates a new humanity. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned and death reigned. Even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Adam was a type of the coming one. But friends, the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes to the grace of the one man, Jesus, Messiah, overflow. And the gift is not like the one man's sin. 
Because from one sin came judgment resulting in condemnation. But, and for many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. <laughs> it's just so shocking. The law came along to multiply the trespass. And believe this, because your life depends on it. Oh, there's, there is so much joy in this next sentence. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Have you sinned this week in a way that absolutely wrecked you? His mercy is more. Does it feel like it's piled up so high like those piles you see out in our pastures? His mercy is more. Where sin multiplies, grace multiplies even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus. Have you seen Jesus over and again? It's just like you just, Paul can't get his eyes off our king. Over and over in this text, grace came through Jesus. It was the one, the gift came through the one man, Jesus. Life is there because of Jesus. We leave the humanity in Adam's failure that leads to death, delivered into a new Adam, Jesus, becoming a new humanity, reigning in life. We reign. That's amazing. You are all princes and princesses. And y'all gonna live happily ever after because of Jesus. And this transition from a dead, despairing humanity to a living, joyful humanity is symbolized with a sacrament in celebration of baptism by immersion underwater, a symbol that proclaims we are baptized into the name, the powerful name of Jesus Messiah. We are buried with him in his death, going under the water, and we are raised up from the water just as he was raised from the dead so that we may walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 1 to 5. <laughs> this isn't here because of Baptists. This isn't here because of people. This is here because the king of the universe gave this to us and said, go and make disciples in my name and teach them everything I have commanded you and then dunk them in water so that there is this outward sign of an inward reality of what I have done in them to justify them by my blood. 
That's so significant. I was standing there as we're singing and I'm looking at that water and I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not just a church, churchy thing. This is a sacred thing. This is a sacred thing. Grace will happen there. Grace. Not saving grace. That's already happened for these people that are going through these waters. But grace is there. There is a grace from God in the waters of baptism. And it's good news. Being made a new humanity because of a new covenant in Jesus. What good news. (laughs) We just have such good news. But wait. What about the old covenant? I mean, this is great. It's all great. It's really great. But what about about all those people that were God's people before Jesus? Does all of this wonderful thing that we're celebrating, does that mean the promises of God had failed? No, Paul says. The Apostle Paul's good news fulfills God's promise to Israel, Romans 9 to 11. As a good Jew, rabbi, and Pharisee par excellence, Paul is extremely familiar with Judaism and the covenant made between Israel and God. He had been so committed to that understanding that he was formerly a persecutor and executor of Christians that he thought in his previous understanding of what God was doing were actually against God and his covenant with his people Israel. So Paul is acutely aware that what he has been proposing and explaining up to this point in Romans 1 to 8, he's aware that this could be seen by Jews in Rome as a counter-proposal to all of the previous promises that God had made. But that is something that he does not believe to be true. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Rather, he makes clear. Look at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. He describes that even under the old covenant, not all ethnic Israel was true spiritual Israel. You see, just because you were a child of the flesh did not mean you were automatically a child of the promise. Furthermore, in the same way that Gentiles could become a part of God's people under the old covenant, so too, as he has already argued, the good news of the kingdom of God come in the person and work of Jesus is also to the Jew first and and to the Greek. Chapter 1, verse 16. But it's just now he's, he's dialing in the preciseness that it is now through faith alone and Messiah alone by grace alone that we are all made children of God. He's going to say that the Gentiles grafted into the olive tree that is Israel are made a part of true Israel. While Jews that refuse to believe in Jesus as Messiah are the branches that are going to be broken off. See Romans 10 and 11. In this way, The ecclesia, the the community, the gathering, the the church of the new covenant people of God made up believers in Jesus and Messiah is not a replacement of the ecclesia of the old covenant of Israel. Rather, it is a fulfillment and continuation of all that God has been up to in the world to create a people for himself, a new humanity. Who will then, note, turn to those who are still in darkness and proclaim this new humanity so that they too might be grafted into the tree that is true Israel. And it is the proclamation of this good news that is now of absolute necessity to both Jew and Gentile because it is the heart of the mission that Paul has been on about throughout Romans and is now made abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. Look at Romans 10, verse 9. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is master and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here today or you're on that live stream, that's all it takes. Confess with your mouth. Believe with your heart. You will be saved. For, let me explain, Paul says, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. Okay, so they're justified. They're made right. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame because there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same master of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the master will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a proclaimer? And how can they proclaim unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through a message about the Messiah, about Jesus. So do you see? Do you see why we begin almost every service with a welcome from Jesus? <laughs> because it's not about grace, church. It's about grace, but it's not about grace, church. It's because to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, they don't need Matthew Molesky. They don't need Paul Inch. They don't need Seth. They need a welcome from Jesus because he's the ally of his enemies. He's the defender of the guilty. He's the justifier of the inexcusable. And he is the friend of sinners. And this is the message we all need hearing. It is the message that our community and our valley needs hearing because they cannot call on whom they don't believe and they cannot believe on whom they have never heard and they cannot hear without someone announcing And we will not announce unless we're sent. Which is what happens at the end of every one of our gatherings. At the end of this service, you will be sent. You are given a mission. Whether or not you came into this room looking for a mission for your day today. You are given a mission. You are the sent out ones. Having heard of Jesus. And can you say that you've heard of Jesus so far today? Okay, so having heard of Jesus, your life's aim, my life's aim is absolutely in league with Paul's to be eager to proclaim the good news. I want to be eager. <laughs> I want to be a little eager beaver. I want to soup you all up with like three shots of espresso and just shoot you out there. We are to go and proclaim Jesus by word and by deed. By word and by deed. We have gathered here to be reminded of the good news and just like Paul, 
that we are slaves. The very first sentence in this letter is, I am a slave of the Messiah. Slave. We are slaves and thus we are under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Chapter 1, verse 14. We are disciples of Jesus who understand the Apostle Paul's good news to Rome is the good news given to us. It's not any different. A good news that reveals God's righteousness, creates a new humanity, and fulfills God's promise to Israel. And knowing that, reflecting on all of this, pondering this, reveling in this, may God by his spirit make us eager to preach this good news to each other because we never get beyond the good news. This is what you need. You always need the fundamentals. Always. We have to proclaim this to each other and we need to proclaim this to every corner of our valley. At this point in the sermon preparation, I walked over, my wife bought two maps as we were vacationing here and put them together so that we would have the entire valley on our wall. And y'all, we, we need to go all the way. There's this little river bridge all the way in the very north of our valley. They need to hear Jesus. And we gotta go down. We know, right? We know that Buena Vista needs Jesus. I mean, come on now. Us Salidans, we know that Buena Vista really needs Jesus. And so do Salidans, 22 to nothing. Man, Salidans needed Jesus on Friday night. That was tough. But you're going to get them back, boys. We'll, we'll do it again. This whole valley needs eager, beaver, happy proclaimers of Jesus. May God give us bigger hearts for the joyful mission. The joyful mission. I didn't say easy. It won't be easy. It will get progressively harder, I think. So, what does that mean? It means that God needs to drive us to our knees in dependence upon Him. It means that God's going to remind us that we actually, you might just actually need God in the person and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We should be crying out for revival in our own hearts. We should be crying out for revival. Revive, make me alive again to this so that I can revive those around me. (laughs) Why else are we here if not for this? If not us, who? He'll send somebody. I mean, can we? Can we do this? Are we able to do this? Well, of course we are because the Apostle Paul's good news empowers a transformed and unified church family. Romans 12 to 16. You see, these doctrines aren't merely to be intellectually known and understood, but lived. Believing in Jesus results in a new and transformed humanity because it is not just what we speak that transforms the world around us. Maybe even more powerful is when our lifestyle is in accord with the truths and the Jesus we profess. That's where I think maybe the real power is. Which is why I think Paul has been so consistent from the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to the very end of the letter, chapter 16, verse 26, to say that his proclamation has been to bring about the obedience of faith. It bookends the letter. In other words, integral to faith is obedience. Integral to belief is action. They're completely enmeshed in each other. 
What we believe is seen in who we are. And if it's not, people don't see what we believe. And something that we know about the church in Rome and the church here in Salida is that the who we are can be made up of very different people. Amen? Amen. <laughs> this is the glory and the beauty of the good news. This mission of love for the lost calls together very different peoples into communities and families of love for the sake of the world and the expression of the kingdom of God in this world. And we all know, we all know that when very different people come together, they are happy and wonderful to each other, aren't they? Or, that happens, happens at grace. I love you guys, happens. But we also know that the probability of discomfort increases with the degree of differentness. Paul knew that this was the case in Rome. It's why he was clear from the outset. It's why he keeps saying this is for the Jew first and also for the Greek, because he's aware there's some differences that are causing difficulties. It's why he's going to spend a great deal of space in chapters 14 and 15 about what that looks like. We're different, which can make relationships hard. Can it, George? George could tell you stories. But, see, here's the, here's the beauty of it. The good news creates uncomfortable communities of beauty filled with people experiencing the good news and safety and time. This is what we aspire to at Grace. An environment of safety. A non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No manipulation. No oppression. No condescension. But respect and sympathy and understanding where sinners can confess and unburden their souls in a place of safety. A church environment where no one seeking Jesus has anything to fear. Oh, can we be committed to that sentence? And if you're going to be, remember, what is the symbol of our faith? A cross. As Brett McCracken writes in his book, Uncomfortable, the Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, quote, Following the Messiah is not one's golden ticket to a white picket fence American dream. <laughs> it, is an, it is an invitation to die to yourself and pick up a cross. Remember Mark 8 last week? Christians are those who give themselves away in love and self-sacrifice to advance a kingdom that is not of this world. We're bringing in something different. End quote. Listen, in our day... And I think we've sensed this, especially since COVID happened. In our day, nominal Christianity is dying off. And you know what we should do? We should celebrate its death. I want to be Christians in name only. And one way we can do this is by rallying around the true and costly pursuit of the Messiah as believers, believers in this good news that Paul has boldly proclaimed to the church in Rome in all its details, all its beauty, all its power, all its glory. For it is belief in the good news that will renew and revive us and keep us committed to the imperfect but essential church. Imperfect. McCracken again. 
Attending my church has been difficult and full of personal discomfort, but also probably the most spiritually enriching church-going season of my, of my life. Nothing grows you quite like faithfulness in the middle of discomfort. Are you hearing that? Don't tap out when it gets hard. See, this is what Paul is on about in chapters 12 through 15. When you read 12 through 15, what you're going to find is presenting yourself to God, loving others, sacrificing for their good, being members of a body by doing whatever is needed, not necessarily what you want to do or are good at, whatever is needed, like helping little kids. Loving one another, outdoing one another, and showing honor. I love that phrase. We're going to talk about that when we get to it. But what, wouldn't it be great if we had contests and gave blue ribbons because we were so eager to outdo each other? Like, he actually says there's good competition among Christians in the church. But it's not competition to get the best seat in the house or to be most known. It's to outdo each other in showing honor. No, I honored her more than you did. No, you did not. Let me say something about her. Submitting to authorities, not passing judgment on each other. Stronger Christians, bearing up with weaker Christians. All for the sake of Jesus. You should read chapter 12 to 15 today. It is a beautiful manual for what church going looks like and what an empowered, transformed, united church family is. And for Paul, we're gonna see, oh, I can't wait to, it's gonna be so good, 9 to 16, you guys. Like, we're gonna see that this is what the new what the good news creates. It's what a church family, being a church family means. <laughs> C.S. Lewis. I didn't go to church to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port could do that. <laughs> if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> I so want that to be on our website. <laughs> Front page. Want to be happy? Drink port. Want discomfort? Come to grace. <laughs> oh, we would just grow like a weed, wouldn't we? So what might this look like? Worship team, would you come up? McCracken gives it one more description. Listen to this. What, what might it look like, this thing, that this empowered, unified church? It would mean worshiping all together without segregating by age or interest. It would mean preaching the whole counsel of God, even the unpopular bits. It would mean fighting against homogeneity and cultivating diversity as much as possible, even if it makes people feel uncomfortable. It would look like prioritizing the values of church membership and tithing, even if that turns people off. It would mean, oh, listen to this. It would mean pushing back against the privatization of relationships by insisting that the health of marriages is the business of the church family. In other words, people will get in your business. And that's good. It means it would look like people sticking around even when the church goes through hard times. 
It looks like building a tight-knit community, but not an insular one that engages the surrounding community and sends out members when missions calls them away. Like Ryan and Rebecca in Thailand. It means bearing with one another in love on matters of debate. Like politics. You bear with one another in love. And yet not shying away from discipline. It would look like proclaiming and preaching truth and love in tension, even if the culture calls it bigotry. None of this is easy, you guys, and none of it is comfortable, and none of it is currently popular in our culture. But by the grace of God and with the Holy Spirit empowering us, uncomfortable church can be something we treasure. Wouldn't it be great to say, I treasure discomfort. That is not American. And may it be so. And all of it's possible. You guys, listen. (laughs) Because of Jesus. Because Jesus is our good news. The Apostle Paul's good news reveals God's righteousness, creates a new humanity, fulfills God's promises to Israel, and empowers a transformed and unified church family. I am so, I'm so eager to preach this good news to you guys in the coming months and for the rest of my life.